hey, good morning. Uh, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and make your way to Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, we're in a series in the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at all of chapter 3 today. If you don't have a Bible and you grab one of those black hardback ones on your way in, uh, it's on page 942. And go ahead and keep that Bible. Uh, is where we have in these. Uh, professor at Stanford uh, conducted an experiment that's known now as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. And I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, it was real simple. Basically what he did is he put kids in a room with a marshmallow on the table in front of them and said that he was going to leave the room for a few minutes. And if they didn't eat the marshmallow while he was gone, when he came back to the room, they could have two marshmallows instead of just that one on the table. Uh, if you've ever seen a video of this, it is hilarious. Uh, you can tell how badly the kids want two marshmallows, but how it's just torturing them uh, to not be able to eat this marshmallow that's right in front of them. And so if you watch a video of this, the kids will, uh, they'll pick up the marshmallow, they'll put it in their mouth, they'll sniff it, uh, they'll tear off a piece of it, they'll put their head down on the table, they'll turn around from the table so they don't have to look at the marshmallow, just whatever they can do. Uh, to try to avoid eating this marshmallow so that they can get two. And uh, it's, it's easy to laugh at and resonate with because delayed gratification is hard. Uh, it's difficult. It is so much harder to wait for something in the future when you have something right there in front of you that would be really easy to get. Uh, and the author of Hebrews knows that's a struggle we don't really grow out of as we get older. Delayed gratification doesn't get a whole lot easier, but he also knows that the Christian life is not a life that's about immediate rewards. He knows that we have a, a greater hope, a greater promise coming to us in the future, a greater home and a greater rest that we are journeying toward, uh, and we're not there yet in this life. And so over the next two chapters of the book of Hebrews, what the author is going to do is going to encourage us to keep journeying home, to not turn away, to not give in and give up, uh, but to keep following Jesus until the end. And so let's see the beginning of this now in Hebrews chapter 3. Let's read this together, starting in verse 1. The word of God, holy brother, you who share in a heaven calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So our time together, God, as we come to your word, would you bless the preaching of it? Would you help us in this moment in a with a word that is uh, so challenging and so convicting and a warning to us. Would you give us ears to hear it? Would you give us eyes to see it? Would you give us hearts to believe it and be receptive toward it? God, would you help us to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Would you help us to exhort and encourage one another? And would you help us to consider Jesus? God, even in these moments, these next few moments, as we talk about your word, would you help us? to consider Jesus, that we might not be tempted to turn away from you. Help us, God, we need your help, uh, we need your spirit, and we need your grace. So would you be present with us in this moment? Pray that you would in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, remember, uh, the book of Hebrews is one long sermon, and so everything in the book keeps building on itself, and so that's how he starts uh, chapter 3 here with therefore, calling us back to and building on what he just said at the end of chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 2, he told us that in order to give us our humanity back and save us from the fear of death and the power of death and our slavery to sin, Jesus took on our humanity. He took on our flesh and became a man and he tasted death for us. He suffered in our place to make payment for our sins so that we would not have to and so that we could be brought back into God's family. And because of that, we are now what Hebrews 3 calls us, his holy brothers and sisters. We share in a heavenly calling. We share and will inherit what Jesus inherits, uh, and we're holy. We've been set apart. We've been made saints through the work of Jesus. Here in verse 1, he calls Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession, which is a really good summary of what, the, what Hebrews has told us about Jesus in these first two chapters. Apostle means a sent one, and Jesus is the one who is sent by God, death for us, and has offered himself up. And so in light of all of that, he encourages us in verse 1 to consider Jesus. To consider something means to slow down, to focus on it, to pause and reflect on it, to not just move on to the next thing. If you've ever been watching a TV show or a movie and you've had to literally pause the TV show or pause the movie to get everything straight in your mind as to what's going on before you move on with the show because a, a twist was so big or a revelation was so unexpected, then you've considered something. To consider Jesus means to slow down, to not just read the words on the page or hear the words of the sermon and then immediately move on to the next thing but to consider him, to think about him, to reflect on him, meditate on him, to turn the truth of the gospel over and over in your mind. And, and this really is the central application of the book of Hebrews. This is how God calls you to respond to his word in this book. 
Uh, he is encouraging us not to fall away, not to turn away from Jesus. And the way you're strengthened to not do that is by considering Jesus. From different angles, this is what every passage in the book of Hebrews is going to tell us to do, to consider Jesus. And, and look, this isn't just the, the main application of the book of Hebrews. This is the central task of the Christian life. If we want to grow, there is nothing more foundational than giving ourselves over to this. This is the habit that everything else grows out of, considering Jesus, remembering Jesus, thinking about Jesus, who he is and what he's done for you, how he loves you until the good news begins to light up your hearts. And he, the author tells us here to consider Jesus in a specific way in comparison to Moses. He says we're considered Jesus as he was faithful, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. And, you know, what we can miss sometimes is just how big of a deal Moses was in the old of Egypt through in the Exodus, which would have hope for the future act of salvation in the Old Testament. When the people of God wanted to have hope for the future, they would remember God brought us out of slavery to Egypt. That means he can save us again. And Moses is the one who led that deliverance. You know, today we primarily, we think of Moses as, as a lawgiver, as someone who hands down rules and commandments to follow, but that's not how the Israelites would have seen Moses. They would have seen Moses as a deliverer, as a redeemer, as a savior, if you will. I mean, in Exodus chapter 14, when God splits the Red Sea and the people walk through on dry ground and then he brings the waters back over the Egyptian army and drowns them as they pursue the Israelites, at, at the end of that chapter, it says, once God does this, the people believe in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Moses is the one who brought God's word to the people after he received it from God on the mountain. Moses is the mediator that brought God's word and revelation to the people, so much so that, that when the people would have thought, well, who gives us God's word? The answer was clearly Moses. Moses is the one who gives God's word to us. In Numbers chapter 12, God tells Moses' brother Aaron, he says, with other prophets, I speak to them in visions and in dreams, but with Moses, I speak to him face to face like a man speaks to his friend. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God promises to raise up a prophet like Moses who will come and redeem us and save us. And, and so Moses was just absolutely a huge deal in the Old Testament. If you wanted to know God, you go through Moses and, and everyone after him stood in his shadow. You know, if you think of it like golf, because of how good and how dominant Tiger Woods was for so long, Everybody now, from now on, is going to be compared to him. And so is there a teenage prodigy on the tour? Well, they're going to be compared to how good Tiger was at their age. Is somebody winning a bunch Tiger was? Because he's so good, he's the standard that everybody else was measured against. And the same thing is true about Moses. But look at what verse 3 says. Verse 3 says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus doesn't stand in Moses' shadow. Moses stands in his. And, and the author gives us a few reasons why. One, he says Moses was faithful as a servant to testify to the things that were going to be spoken later. So Moses' whole life was about pointing forward to Jesus. And so if your whole life's about pointing forward to somebody else, that somebody else is greater than you. 
But not just that, the, the author also uses this metaphor of a house to describe the people of God. And he says the builder of a house is greater than the house itself. And we get that, right? Because no matter how amazing the mansion is, no matter how immaculate it might be, the person who thought all that up and dreamed all that up and designed all that and executed that, they're greater than the mansion itself. They're not limited by that. They're greater than their creation. And Moses, he was a leader of God's people, but he wasn't the builder of God's people. He didn't create the people of God. I mean, look at what it says about him. It says he's just a servant. He's faithful in God's house. So he's just a man. He's just a part of the people of God. But what it says about Jesus is that Jesus is faithful over God's house, over God's people as a son. So Moses didn't create the people of God. He's just a man, but Jesus is God. And he did create the people of God. He did build the people of God. So Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. And look at what verse 6 says. It says, not only was Jesus faithful over the house, we are his house if we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You know, the whole point of the Exodus, the whole reason God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt was, was so that they would be free to serve him and worship him. As soon as they get out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness, God gives them instructions on how to build the tabernacle, this portable tent, this home where God will put his presence and live among his people in their neighborhood. He'll move in to their neighborhood with them and journey with them as they go through the wilderness. But because of Jesus, we don't have just a tabernacle where God lives among us that we go to. We are the tabernacle. We are God's house. God lives in us through his spirit individually, but, but even more so when we gather together as his people. Hebrews is stacking all of this up to show us we have uh, such a better salvation than the one that Moses brought. We have God's presence with us in a greater way. We have a better redeemer than Moses in Jesus. And Hebrews wants to lay that out for us and show us that so that unlike the Israelites, we wouldn't fall away. This is where the passage moves next because in verse 7, uh, he quotes from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is talking about the generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt under Moses' leadership. In the Exodus. And what the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers show us is what the psalm tells us here that this people, they constantly hardened their hearts. They constantly complained. They did not trust God. They did not believe in Him. In verse 9, they saw His wonders, but they didn't believe. They constantly complained. I mean, this is the generation that saw God work all the plagues on the Egyptians, they saw the Passover, they saw the Red Sea, and, and God bring his people out and crush the Egyptian army so that was pursuing them so that they would have nothing to fear. After all of that, they complain that they're hungry. So you know what God does? God rains down bread from heaven, manna, every single day and twice on Friday so that they, God brings water out of a rock, literally out of a rock. Well, then they get tired of the manna and the bread, and so they complain about that, and God brings quail from heaven to feed them. And, and you know what happens after all of that? They complained. They didn't.
believe. They didn't trust in God. And this all comes to a head in Numbers 13 and 14. This is what Psalm 95 is talking about. In Numbers 13 and 14, they get to the edge of Canaan, the promised land that God has promised that he's going to give them completely by his grace. They don't even have to work for it. They just have to believe, and God will accomplish it. And so they get to the edge of the promised land, and they send 12 spies into the promised land. Well, the spies come back, and 10 of the spies say, it's scary. There are tall people in there. Uh, There are people who are over six feet tall. There's no way we can win uh, in a battle against them. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they come back and they say, listen, doesn't matter how tall they are. God said these people are going to be a piece of cake for us. Let's trust God. God's been faithful. Let's believe and do what he calls us to do. But the people didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb. They listened to the, the other spies and they didn't believe. They didn't go into the promised land. They rebelled against God and didn't do what he called them to do. And so in response to this, God declared that that whole generation would spend 40 years marching in the desert until everybody over the age of 20, besides Joshua and Caleb, died in the desert. None of them would get to go into the promised land. They would all perish in the desert. This is what The passage is saying in verse 11 when it says God swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. And verse 12 of Hebrews tells us that this is not just a history lesson for us, it's a warning for us. It tells us to take care. That means see to it, make sure, be careful that you don't make the same mistake they did. God, verse 13, make sure. And so how do we do this? How do we avoid having our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? How do we see to it that there wouldn't be an evil, unbelieving heart in any of us? Well, I think the psalm that that Hebrews quotes here is helpful because I think it helps us distinguish between uh, the sort of more normal, run-of-the-mill doubts that all of us are going to face in a a broken world and, and the doubt that's evidence of an evil, unbelieving heart. And so the more normal type of doubt is It starts from a posture of trust. It's, God, I believe you, but I've still got some unresolved and unanswered questions. Help me understand. It's it's faith seeking understanding. It's, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me understand. You know, we're not just souls trapped in a meat suit. We are body and soul, which means that what happens with our bodies is going to affect what happens with our souls. And so there are days when we're sick or we're in pain or we're tired, and we're just going to be more prone to doubt. We're going to be more prone to just not be feeling it as much that day. And unfortunately, in this world, that's normal. That, that's really not the type of doubt that Hebrews is talking about here. The type of doubt that Hebrews is talking about here is the sort of doubt that says, you're going to have to convince me if I'm going to believe it, and even if you do show me, I'm not going to be convinced. It's a doubt that starts from a posture of skepticism, a posture of, I don't really trust you, you're going to have to prove it to me, and then when anybody tries to prove it to you, you're not going to allow that as proof. It would be like having a a really, really rich friend, and your opinion of this really rich friend is that they're very stingy and selfish with their money. They're incredibly not generous. Well, say out of nowhere, uh, unprompted, this friend decides to buy you a new car, and so you think, well, 
sure, that's a nice gift, I guess, but uh, if you really were generous, if you really weren't selfish with your money, you'd buy me a house, because unprompted, uh, they do buy you a house. How am I supposed to one, too? And so you think, well, real nice gift this is, because how am I supposed to furnish a house this big? How am I supposed to pay the mortgage on this? Like, you just wanted to put me up in this house so you could see me on the street in six months. You probably didn't think about any of that because you're a selfish jerk who doesn't care about anybody else. Well, then let's say again, unprompted. They say, well, hey, I, I want to make sure that you're covered financially. I want to make sure you have nothing uh, to worry about. So I, every month, I'm going to give you $100,000. It'll be in your bank account the first day of every month. And so then you think, well, what am I? My charity case? Like, you've got to have some angle here. You have something up your sleeve. I know there's some way you're going to pull the rug out from under me. I know, that sounds extremely over the top and outlandish, does it not? But that's exactly how the Israelites acted. That's how they doubted. They got it fixed in their minds that God is not good, God is not for us, and God cannot be trusted, and no matter what wonders God worked, no matter what evidence he gave to the contrary, they would not believe. They'd already settled in their hearts that they weren't going to believe. And look, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, well, that's not a picture of me. I don't doubt like that. The Israelites are crazy. If I would have seen all of that, I wouldn't doubt like that. And Hebrews is trying to show you, yes, you do. Yes, you would. Yes, you are in danger of this. Because what we're getting here in Hebrews and Psalm 95, we're getting the end of the process of the Israelites hardening their heart. When they've already completed this process of fully hardening their heart. So you may not look as bad as the Israelites do on the edge of the promised land. But I promise you, the seeds of this same unbelief are in your heart. And if you do not fight them they'll grow and your heart will become just as hard and unbelieving as the describe this process of hardening your heart. The first one, hardening your heart. Think of concrete. When concrete is first poured, it's soft. You can put designs in it. You can draw in it. You can put your hands and feet in it and move it all around. But just give it some time and some air and it, it keeps hardening and hardening and finally it sets and you can't make designs in it. You can't put your hands and feet in it and move it all around. The only way you can move it is to break it up because it's so rock solid and so rock hard. Or think back to the word that he used at the beginning of chapter 2, that the danger is that we would drift from the gospel message that we have heard. A drift is slow and it's unnoticeable. You're in the ocean and, and you're just kind of messing around and you look up and all of a sudden, you're 50 to 100 yards down shore from where your stuff is, and you don't really know how you got there. You didn't feel yourself being pulled along. Sinful unbelief happens the same way. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a process, like concrete being poured, like a drift. It's a process where you give yourself more and more reasons why sin is better for you than obedience is and why God is not really worthy of your trust. And so you sin, and you don't face immediate consequences for it, and you think, well, that really wasn't all that bad. That was actually pretty enjoyable. Maybe God just got this one wrong. Maybe he's just a little bit prudish and uppity about this one. Or something bad comes into your life, something difficult happens to you, and you think, God, did, it, 
Did you just take the day off? Did I slip off your radar today? Did you just forget about me? And your heart gets a little bit harder. Or you make something in your life into an idol, whether it's your career or relationship, whatever it might be, and then it fails you, it lets you down, and you blame God. You get angry at God for letting your false God let you down. God, how could you do this to me? How could you ruin my life and its trust? That, we, that no one would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin's deceitful. It lies to you about itself and about God so that you can't see straight. Look, sin is so deceptive that you can talk yourself into anything if you give it enough time. I promise you, if you give it enough time, you can rationalize and justify away anything about why this isn't really a sin, God really understands, you're really the exception, and it's not that big of a deal. We have to justify our actions to our hearts to quiet down our conscience when it convicts us with guilt, and we're experts at doing it. We're experts at justifying and rationalizing away our sin and our unbelief. I mean, do you think that somebody who is just consumed with with envy and bitterness and discontentment, do you think they, they just woke up one day that way? No, there was a day when they were grateful for what God had given them, when they were grateful for their car, they were grateful for their house or their apartment, but then they went to a friend's house that had a nicer house than them, or they saw their friend got a new toy, and they thought, God, it kind of seems like you're holding out on me here. Uh, why do they get to have nice stuff? Why don't I get to have nice stuff like this? I wish I could live a life that was a little bit more like this. And you just keep stoking the fires of sin's deceptiveness that's lying to you and telling you God is not for you and God is holding out on you and he can't be trusted. Do you think people that walk away from the faith, that deconstruct and turn away from Jesus, do you think they just woke up one day and were like, yeah, I guess I'm just not going to believe in Jesus anymore? No, it was, a, it was a pattern of thousands of small compromises along the way where they said that what God says is sin isn't really sin, and what God says is stupid, and it's not worth following. It was a thing as, this means God is angry at me. This means God's punishing me. This means God has forgotten about me until eventually it got to, this means God must not even exist, or I shouldn't follow him. Whatever your specific sin may be, you harden your heart through a thousand small compromises of giving yourself over to this and believing these lies over and over uh, as you do it. Um, and, and listen, Hebrews is telling us, you're in danger of this. We're all in danger of this. All of us could harden our hearts and engage in this process until finally we get to the point where we just throw up our hands and walk away from it all and think God is not good and God is not worthy to be followed. Like Hebrews is saying this could happen to you, and if you don't think it could, the Bible would tell you that you are being a fool because he requotes the encouragement from Psalm 95 to not harden your heart and then look again at what he says in verses 16 through 19. He says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? 
Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So Hebrews is asking all these rhetorical questions to show us that everybody who died in the desert and didn't get to go into the promised land, they all saw the plagues. They all saw the Passover. They all saw the Red Sea. They all saw the manna from heaven, the water from a rock, the quail provided for them, and everybody besides the promised land. What the author of Hebrews is doing, he's laying the story of Israel over our lives like a map to show us this is our story. Just like the Israelites, we are on an exodus journey. We have been redeemed. We've been delivered from the slavery of our sin. And we're journeying home to the true promised land, to our eternal home, the new heavens and the new earth. But in this life, like the Israelites, we're in the wilderness. This is the map of your Christian life. This is how you need to see your Christian life. You've been redeemed from the true Egypt of slavery to sin and death, and you are headed to your true, to the true promised land, to rest, to the new heavens and the new earth. But as long as we are in this life, we are in the wilderness. And, and this is why Hebrews was comparing Jesus to Moses. It was comparing Jesus to Mo Moses to show us We've got a better everything in Jesus. We've got a better redeemer. We've got a better salvation. We've got God's presence with us in a greater way than the Israelites did. And we're journeying home to a greater rest and a greater promised land. But just like the Israelites who experienced all this grace and all of these privileges from God and still died out in the desert because of their unbelief, Hebrews is saying, don't make the same mistake. You are in the same story. Hebrews is saying it is not enough to go to church, to be baptized, to be externally connected to God's people, because the Israelites experienced all of that and still didn't get to go into the promised land because of their unbelief and their hardness of heart. And so the question is not, do you go to church? Have you been baptized? Are you a church member? Are you part of a community group? Do you do Bible study? The question is, do you believe? Are you trusting in Jesus right now? The, the people that make it all the way home to Jesus and keep trusting him until he brings them all the way home, until he brings them to the end. And so you need to examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Once again, if you do not believe, it does not matter if you've been baptized, if you go to church, if you attend religiously, if you're a church member, if you're a part of a community group, if you do not believe, you will perish and die in the wilderness just like the Israelites and go to hell. God is giving us this warning to show us you're in the same story, so don't make the same mistake they did. With all of this grace and all of these privileges, the danger is still that you could let sin deceive you and harden your heart so that you turn away from the living God and you don't make it home to the promised land. 
So don't make the same mistake. Don't turn away. And so that's the warning. How do we avoid that? How do we listen to this warning? How do we avoid having an evil, unbelieving heart grow up in us that would lead us to fall away from God? Well, the first thing the book calls us to, to avoid this, is to, in verse 13, exhort and encourage one another every day. To exhort one another means to encourage each other, to urge each other forward, to believe and to keep trusting in Jesus uh, so that we make it to the end. We are called by God to help each other make it all the way to the end, to make sure none of us dies out in the desert. And the way we do that is by encouraging and exhorting one another every day. And what do we encourage one another with? The gospel. If, if sin lies to us and makes us believe that God is not good and God cannot be trusted, then we fight that, those lies with the truth of God has saved us. He's forgiven us of all of our sins. He's crushed the condemnation that we would have faced for our sins and his judgment. He's taken it so that we would never have to face it. And he's accepted us. He's brought us into his family. He's made us his own. We encourage one another with the good news. We encourage one another to not believe the lies of sin. We urge each other to consider Jesus, to remember Jesus. And so do you have anyone here who does that with you? Do you have anyone here that you do that with? Do you have anyone here who refocuses you on Jesus, that you talk about Jesus with? Do you have anybody here that you can get beyond the normal kind of small talk on a Sunday and actually be open about your heart and about your struggles? If you don't, you need to get it as quick as you can because nobody here is excluded by this text. The text does not say, exhort one another every day unless you're a pastor. It does not say, exhort one another every day, unless you've been a Christian for a while, then you're probably okay. No, it says, exhort one another every day, because we all need this. Sin is attacking us and trying to deceive us every day, so we need encouragement and refocusing on Jesus every day. We need help with this. And how often are we called to encourage one another? Well, the text says every day, and you know what that means? It's this really deep, mystical, hidden sort of meaning. Um, it's why you guys pay me to figure out stuff like this. You know what it means? It means every day. Every day. It doesn't mean once a week. It doesn't mean quite a bit. It means every day we are meant to encourage one another and urge each other to keep trusting in Jesus. Because listen, again, you can talk yourself into anything. If you stay by yourself and you stay with your own thoughts, God encourage you and help you make it all the way home. God has given you to help you make it all the way home. You know, we've got this idea in American Christianity that you can come to church on Sundays and hear sermons and not really get involved relationally with anybody and just stick with your nuclear family and, and you'll still be okay spiritually if you do that. Look, that may be American Christianity, that's not biblical Christianity. The Bible has no category for that. You need other people here. It's not just like a, a nice thing if you can get it. You will not make it home to the promised land without 
other people helping you. Sin is that deceptive. And, and look, I would imagine all of us can grow in, in being obedient to this command and being obedient to encouraging one another every day. And so I would encourage you to think through, how can I carve out more space for this in my life to get together with people here and encourage them and be encouraged? What day can I do a breakfast? What day can I do a lunch? When can we have people over for dinner? How can I get serious about fighting sin and its deceptiveness so that I'm not lured and carried away by it? And so we, we encourage one another every day so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but we also take care to see to it that we don't have an unbelieving heart by considering Jesus. Um, what God is looking for is not heroic or impressive actions. What God is looking for from us is faith, belief, is trust in him. Verse 19, they didn't get to go into the promised land, not because of anything else, but because they did not believe. And look, hardening your heart, it's a slow process, it's gradual, it's hard to see, but that does not mean that you aren't still choosing to do it. You choose to harden your heart when you interpret a situation or a circumstance as this means God doesn't love you. choose to harden your heart when you sin and you think, well, this really wasn't that sinful. This really isn't that big of a deal. God understands. He doesn't care that much. You choose to harden your heart when you rationalize and justify away your pride and your bitterness and your gossip as things that, that aren't really prideful. Bitterness that isn't really bitterness, and gossip that isn't really gossip. You choose to harden your heart with a thousand small compromises and justifying away your sin, but that also means that you can choose to consider Jesus. You can choose to not believe the lies of sin. You can choose to not let your heart grow hard. You are not just helpless to be carried along with this drift. You can consider Jesus, and the main way you avoid this drift is by doing that, by considering Jesus. It is so much harder to doubt that God loves you and is working everything in your life for good when the gospel is what's first and foremost on your mind throughout the day. It is so much harder to say to God, God, is that all you got? When the truth that God literally took on flesh and died for you to save you is what's reverberating around in your mind and in your heart. It is so much harder to believe that God has forgotten about you or changed his mind about you when you know that the deepest truth about your life is that because of the work of Jesus, you've been completely forgiven. You've been fully accepted. You've been welcomed into God's family, and he's never going to turn you away. We fight the lies of sin by considering the good news of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. Do you want to avoid the drift into hardness of heart? Do you do that by considering Jesus? Um, I'm a nerd. You guys know this. Um, but, but what I mean by that is uh, not only do I like to read books, uh, I like to read, uh, but in a couple of decades about how reading fiction uh, can actually grow can grow virtue in us. It can make us better people, and that fiction's actually much better than nonfiction for doing that. And the reason why 
is because with fiction, you're given a flesh and blood example. You're getting like a lived and not an abstract example of these virtues and of these characteristics. And when it's written well, it's inspiring. It's motivating. You want to follow that example or you want to avoid that example if it's something that's, that's worthy of avoiding. You know, uh, compare it to like, like a, a self-help or a business type book. They can tell you to be a good friend. It's important to be loyal. It's important to be kind. It's important to be selfless. But there's really no juice behind that encouragement. It's kind of just a dead letter telling you, you should think about doing this. Well, compare that instead to the way that Samwise is a friend to Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. No, don't laugh. This is serious. Compare it to the way that Frodo, that Samwise is a friend of Frodo in the Lord of the Rings, how loyal he is to him, how he goes on the journey to Mordor with him, how at one point in the journey, Frodo says he has to go to Mordor alone, and Samwise says, of course you are, and I'm coming with you. Think about deeper into the journey when uh, he can't go any further, Frodo can't go any further, and Samwise says, hey, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you, and he picks him up and carries him forward. And so you read that story, and for a thousand pages, you're just immersed in this beautiful picture of friendship, and, and you can't help but read that and not want to be a friend like that, because it's, it's inspiring, it's motivating, because it's so good and beautiful and true. I, I promise you, you'll learn more about friendship from Lord of the Rings than you ever will from any business or self-help book that you can read, because good fiction does that. It gives us examples to imitate, that motivate and inspire. Because not only is Jesus historical and full, he's our made-up character, but before Jesus is ever our example, he's our Savior. So the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus gives you a really good example to follow. The good news of the gospel is that even when you couldn't follow his example, Jesus was doing what he was doing for you to save you. And so you can read the Gospels and get a flesh and blood example of what Jesus is doing for you, to save you, to be gracious to you. For example, think of when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector to follow him. And then that night, he goes to Matthew's house and has a party and eats dinner with Matthew and all his sinful tax collecting friends. The point of that story is not we should reach out and be welcoming to people like Jesus is. The point of that story is you're the tax collector and sinner who needs to be welcomed. You don't deserve a seat at his table, but Jesus is gracious and he's welcomed and invited you in. Think about the Good Samaritan. So often the Good Samaritan is taught as you should be a neighbor like this. But if you go back and you look at the way that Jesus tells the story, he does not, put the, he does not make the person hearing the story the hero of the story. The hero of the story is not the Good Samaritan. The person hearing the story is the one who's dead in the ditch, that the Good Samaritan comes along and helps. You know why Jesus does that? Because that's our story. We were dead in a ditch. We needed Jesus to come and pick us up and bring us back to life and health. We needed him to sacrifice at great cost to himself to bring us back to life. You'll never be a neighbor like that to people until you realize Jesus was a neighbor like that to you and you needed his grace to be a neighbor like that to you. The whole Bible is just a gift of God to help us consider 
Jesus and his beauty and his worth and his grace and his value towards us come by looking at yourself and your own resources. It comes by looking at Jesus. Do you want to be, do you want to not turn away? Do you want to make it home to the end? Do you want to avoid an evil, unbelieving heart? Then every day, consider Jesus and encourage others to consider Jesus. That's how we make it all the way home. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your grace. I thank you for the grace of a warning like this uh, that tells us we are in danger of this. God, help us. I pray that none of us in here would have an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead us to fall away from you. God, while the promise of entering your rest still stands, would you help us to fear so that no one would fail to reach it? God, would you help us to get serious about encouraging one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Would you help us to take care and see to it? God, would you help us to consider Jesus? Thank you that in the midst of this warning, we have the truth that we have one greater than Moses who has redeemed us and set us free and is bringing us home. Help us to believe that. Help us to trust in that. I pray that you would. In your name, amen.